All right. If you have your Bible, I hope you do, please open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 is where we will be today. Genesis 6. I apologize for my unexpected absence last week. Um, and uh, thanks for all who were able to fill in. I appreciate my friend Stephen um, for coming and filling in very, very last minute. Did not get sick until Saturday and really Saturday evening. And, um, and so I appreciate him coming. Uh, but uh, I, I always um, hate when I'm not here with you. And so I'm so thankful to be here. Um, and uh, still getting over a little bit of that little cold stuff. Don't think I'm contagious, but you don't have to get close to me today. That's fine. Um, and uh, just that little lingering kind of tickle in your throat. And so if you'll bear with me today, I would be uh, very grateful. Our passage today is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And the uh, title of our message is God's Grace in a World of Wickedness. And so if you would, stand if you're able to. And we're going to read these eight verses. I'll read and you follow along in your copy of God's Word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. You may be seated. Do you agree with this statement? Do you agree with this statement? Here you go. Here's the statement. In general, people are mostly good. In, in general, people are mostly good. Would you agree with that or would you not? Most people in our world today would agree with that. If you walk down the street, did a little survey, and ask people, you know, in general, are people mostly good? Most people in our world would agree with that statement. They would say something like, oh, you know, we know there are a few bad apples. We know there are a few crazies out there. Um, but in general, most people are good. Except that we're not. <laughs> Except that we are not. The revelation of Scripture is that people are not mostly good. The revelation of Scripture is that people are wicked. People are wicked. Now, we don't like to hear that. That's not a fun thing for us to say. In fact, there's something inside each of us that I, I really think kind of recoils a bit at that statement. So, wait a second. I mean, how could you say something like that? That people are wicked, that they're not mostly good. I mean, me? Wicked? Yeah, I'm... Maybe sometimes I, I act like a bad apple, but I mean, wicked me? My, my, my sweet granny, she's wicked? My precious little son, my little boy, wicked? My best friend, wicked? Yeah, I know there's some wicked people, but, but 
not, not everyone. The answer is yes. People are not mostly good, which is a very prevalent belief in our world today. The truth of Scripture is that people are wicked. Whenever you study God's Word, um, there are two great questions to ask to help you understand whatever passage you're reading. So a little Bible study tip for you. Whenever you read the Bible, it doesn't matter where you're reading in the Bible, um, you want to ask two questions that will just help bring you to some of the meat of what God is saying. The first question is this, what does this passage teach me about God? And the second question is, what does this passage teach me about me? Or you could do humans in general. You make it personal, me. What does this passage teach me about God, and what does this passage teach me about people? Well, as you read the Bible, the overarching answers become very clear. God is good, He is holy, He is perfect, He is righteous, He's loving, He's merciful, He's gracious. He's holy and perfect in all of His ways. And the answer to the second question becomes very clear throughout the pages of Scripture. People are not good, people are not perfect, people are not righteous. People are sinful and rebellious and, yes, we can use the word wicked. That's the testimony of Scripture over and over again. That may not be a very popular, popular belief, but it is the Word of God. But, thankfully, God's Word doesn't leave us there in that recognition of our wickedness. Despite our wickedness, God loves us. In fact, as clear as His holiness rings out through the pages of Scripture so does his love and mercy and grace toward wicked humanity. And we see all of this in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had originally intended to preach all of verses 1 through 8 in one sermon, but I decided uh, to split it into two. And, uh, and so this is part two of, of a sermon. And so if you haven't listened to part one and you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you're welcome to go and listen to that. And, uh, and we study verses 1 through 4. But I want to keep our main idea statement the same. We're going to look at the second half of this passage, but the main idea is still the same for verses 1 through 8. And that's this. Church family, if not for God's grace, we would be utterly destroyed. If not for God's grace, we would be utterly destroyed. That's important for us to know so that we'll be led to Jesus who can rescue us. That's where we find grace. And that's important for us to be reminded of so that we will see other people around us in light of this statement. If not for God's grace, they would be utterly destroyed and will be if they don't receive God's grace. And so the burden is upon us to go and share the good news. Even in that statement, we see those main points of Scripture shine through. People are wicked. That's what all of Scripture teaches. God should destroy us, we learn in this passage, which implies His holiness and His righteousness. It is right for a holy God to punish wicked people. We also see that God is gracious toward wicked people. Here in Genesis 6, 1-8, through 8, and throughout all of Scripture. Now a couple weeks ago, like I said, we looked in some detail at verses 1-4. through 4. I've told a few people since that sermon that that was probably the weirdest sermon I've ever preached. But I think it's because it's one of the weirdest passages in God's Word. And I mean that with the utmost respect to God's Word. Verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 6, they're just some strange verses. And so that was a strange sermon. Um, and, uh, and yet there was uh, one main truth that rang clear those verses. They're difficult to interpret, but the main point is very clear, and that's this. The first truth I share with you a couple weeks ago is this. The multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of wickedness. 
The multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of wickedness. Whatever it is that's going on in verses 1 through 4 is clearly not good because it's leading God to limit human life. And we see that clearly in verse 3. Verse 1 tells us that humanity was multiplying. Verse 5 tells us that wickedness was great on the earth, which means that the multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of wickedness. Now I want to pause for just a second and make sure we're clear on something. The problem was not that humanity was multiplying. And I say that because that is the diagnosis that many in our society place upon the problems of our world today. They say the problem with the world is that there are too many humans. And so we should stop reproducing. We should limit the population. You hear this all over, okay? We should limit. Listen, the problem here, the problem in Genesis 6, is not that humanity was multiplying. It's not that there were too many people. The problem is that the humans who were there were wicked. Listen, even after the flood, that's what's coming, right? The flood is coming. Um, God's going to wipe out uh, the 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 population, save for one man and his family. Um, but then in Genesis chapter 9, you know what God's going to do? He's going to say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If the problem was too many people, why does God turn right around after the flood and give the very same command he gave in the garden? Well, the problem isn't that humans are multiplying. God wants humanity to multiply. It's his command that we would multiply. The problem is that our hearts are wicked. The wickedness of humanity. And that wickedness is deep down in our hearts. That wickedness must be punished by a holy God. And we see this driven home in verses 5 through 7. And so I want to move into that passage, um, the second half of uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and share with you the second truth that we learn here. The second truth is this. Where wickedness multiplies, God's punishment must be poured out. The multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of, of wickedness. And where wickedness multiplies, God's punishment must be poured out. Verses 5 through 7 are very sad verses. Snowed again what Scripture says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let that sink in. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What sad verses. The way these verses are written, it makes it seem like God wants us to have a flashback. A flashback to creation. To that perfect world He created, and then to compare that perfect world with the world of Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, is the first time we've seen the phrase, God or the Lord saw, since we saw that repeated over and over in the creation account. Remember, God saw what He made and it was good. He saw and it was good. He saw and it was good. He saw and it was good. The next time we see that phrase, God saw, or here it's the Lord saw, things are not good. And then if you look at verse 7, God is recounting different parts of His creation. Right? It says land, man, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. All this language sounds a lot like the language of creation back in chapter 1. But there's a big difference between these verses in chapter 6 and the verses of chapter 1. There, God saw that everything He made was good. Now, God sees wickedness. God saw, the Lord saw, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. There, God was creating and filling creation with life. And now, He is getting ready to blot 
out what He made and take away life. Why is that? Why is God acting this way? The short answer is this, that God sees the wickedness in the world He made and He cannot ignore it. Notice with me just three quick responses that we see here. Three responses to wickedness. God, not our response, but God's response to wickedness in verses 5 through 7. First, I want you to notice this, that God sees the depth of our wickedness. <clears throat> God sees the depth of our wickedness. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a stinging indictment upon humanity. Church, if there's one thing that we try hard to do as humans, is this. We try hard to cover up our sin. Oh man, we, 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 we got all the tools in the tool belt to try, to try to cover up our sin. Sometimes we go to great lengths to cover up our sin. Some of us today might be trying to cover up sin in our lives. But this verse says that God sees it all. And He sees so much that He sees that our sin is not just outward acts of disobedience but he sees and knows that it originates deep down within our hearts earlier earlier we noted how prevalent the idea is that people are mostly good friend not only are we not mostly good but our wickedness is not just surface level our wickedness is deep down inside of us sometimes you hear people make comment like this oh well he, he's got a good heart. He, he just made a few bad choices. You ever heard somebody say something like that? She's got a good heart. She just made a few, a few bad choices in life. That's wrong. I know it's meant, it's meant out, of, out of wanting to love that person, but that's, that's an inaccurate statement when we compare it to God's Word. No one has a good heart according to God. Our wickedness, not, wickedness is not just surface level. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Our wickedness is deep within us. It's at the very core of who we are. We can deny it. We can try to cover it up. We can compare ourselves with others to try to make ourselves look better. But deep down, every one of us is wicked. And no one is hiding it from God. The anger, the bitterness, the lust, deceit, hypocrisy, the pride, whatever, even those sins of our hearts, before they ever even manifest themselves into action, God sees. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 says this, <clears throat> The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Did you catch that? The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. But you know what happens when a sinful, sick heart produces fruit? That fruit is not edible. It's only meant for the garbage pile. It's only meant for the dumpster. That's what we produce. Sin, because our hearts are wicked. Men and women, boys and girls here today, our wickedness runs deep and the Holy God sees it. The second response that God has here is that He's grieved by our wickedness. God sees our wickedness, but then notice this. God is grieved by our wickedness. Have you ever thought about that before? God is grieved. It's not that God sees our wickedness and it just remains indifferent. Oh, I see it, but who cares? No, rather God sees and He cares. 
and he cares deeply about our wickedness. Verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And then if you look at the end of verse 7, it says, For I am sorry that I have made them. Twice we see that word sorry, or some translations could tr- would translate that regretted. Now obviously this raises the question as to whether or not God made a mistake when he created humanity. I mean, here he's saying, I'm sorry, regretting that I made humanity. Is God apologizing here? Is God saying that if he could go back, he would not have created humans? I don't think that's at all what he's saying. I mean, one obvious reason is, if you keep reading, he doesn't blot them all out, and then he tells them, like we already said, to repopulate the earth, so he turns around and does the same thing again. I don't think he's apologizing. I don't think he's saying that he made a mistake. Listen, there are places in Scripture where God is said to regret something that he has done, And yet, Scripture very clearly states that God's regret is not the same as man's regret. Let me show you one of those places. And we can't get into the details of it. I just want to show you this one place um, in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God says this. He says, I regret, it's the same word used in Genesis 6, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So we, we say, Okay, well, it sounds like God is saying that he made a mistake. I I shouldn't have made Saul king. That was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. But later in the very same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15, Scripture says this, and also the glory of Israel. Now, that's that's a name for God. Okay, it's talking about God. Now, also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Same word. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay? Now I'm going to go to the last verse of that chapter. The chapter closes with these words. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So then we're like, what in the world? So does God regret or does he not regret? I mean, he regretted that he made Saul. Then scripture says in the same chapter, God does not regret. He's not like man in that he regrets. And then the very end of the chapter says he regretted that he made Saul. Does God regret? Does he not? Does he make mistakes? Does he not? Again, we can't go into the detail of all of chapter uh, 15 of 1 Samuel, but I just want to point out that at least what we can gather from 1 Samuel 15 is that there is a way that God regrets and there is a way that he does not regret. And the way that he does not regret is the way that humans, that mankind regrets. He is not man that he should lie or have regret. So apparently there's two different ways that this word could be interpreted. So what does it mean in Genesis 6? We see it at the beginning of verse 6, at the end of verse 7. Let me, let me say it this way. And as I've thought about it, I, I, think, I think maybe this is a helpful way. Hopefully it'll help you. It's helped me to think through. What does it mean that God is saying, I'm sorry that I've made humanity? I think verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 6 have more to do with God's emotions than with his decisions. In other words, these verses are letting us into God's heart more than they are letting us into his mind. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't think we're to walk away from these verses thinking that God has made a mistake in creating humans. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have regrets like humans have regrets. I do think, though, we are to walk away from these verses pondering just how much our sin grieves the heart of God. 
And that's where we interpret this word in context with the other word that's given. He was grieved to his heart. That word grieve at the end of verse 6 helps lead us to the correct interpretation of the word that's translated regretted or sorry. God cares for His creation, especially those created in His image, which is every human being. And so when He sees humanity living with wickedness deep down in their hearts, He, in some way, feels this sorrow and grief. And it's deep down in His heart. Psalm chapter 78, verse 40 speaks of Israel rebelling. God's people rebelling while they wandered in the wilderness. And Psalm 78, 40 says this, how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Isaiah chapter 68, verse 10 says, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. And here in Genesis 6, we see the same word used. God is grieved. But only here does it say, only place in Scripture where it talks about God grieving something that it says, it grieved Him to His heart. It grieved Him to His heart. Church, God's regret is not an admission of a mistake that He's made. Not that God has made a mistake. God's regret is a deep sense of grief at the choices of His creation, at the choices of mankind. The heart of God is grieved when He sees our wickedness. So what does He do? Well, verse 7 says He punishes wickedness. This is the third response that we see. We see God sees wickedness. We see that it grieves Him to His heart. And then we see this response of punishment. God punishes our wickedness. God punishes our wickedness. He has to. He's a holy and righteous God. Verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Here we have the just punishment of the wicked. And if you've read ahead, if you know what comes next, you know that this is not an empty threat. This is not God, uh, God going, oh, I'm going to get them, I'm going to get them, and then He just never does anything. God speaks, He speaks with purpose, and He does what He says He's going to do. God is going to send a flood, and it's going to do exactly what He says here. Blot out His corrupted creation. Now, I mean, think that the fact that the punishment will come in the form of a flood is foreshadowed by the fact that the fish of the sea are left out in verse 7. Do you notice that? The land, the animals, the creeping things, the birds of the air. It doesn't mention the fish of the sea. Why? Because they can survive a flood. So it's already foreshadowed what kind of destruction is coming. But friend, I want you to know that God is holy and therefore He stands in opposition to all who are not holy. I mean, he doesn't just stand in opposition to your sin. He stands in opposition to you, the sinner. To me, the sinner. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 26 tells us this. The thoughts of the wicked, that sounds like Genesis 6, right? Every thought of his heart was wicked continually, right? Proverbs tells us that the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. He hates hates wickedness he loathes wickedness he despises wickedness because it is everything that he is not all wickedness is in opposition to him it's a rejection of who he is if humanity is wicked god is holy so he hates wickedness he must punish wickedness if he didn't punish wickedness then he would not be holy now at this point it's easy to say well 
You know, that was then. That was Genesis 6. But now people are mostly good. Friends, no, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. Nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 6 with the hearts of humanity. They were wicked then. We are wicked now. Over a thousand years after Genesis chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah said this. He said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The eyes of the Lord. In other words, because our hearts are wicked, even our attempts at good works are filthiness in the eyes of God. Because even our attempts at good works are coming from hearts that are wicked. And then a thousand years, almost a thousand years after Isaiah, the Apostle Paul quoted the book of Psalms, which says, none is righteous, no, not one. And then Paul went on to say this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, nothing has changed. It's not popular to say it, but it's the truth of God's Word. Every one of us is wicked before the holy God who made made us. Which means that every one of us ought to be punished by God for our wickedness. And whenever we see God punish wickedness, we know that it is just and it is right for Him to do so because we are guilty. God's punishment is not random. He's not closing His eyes, putting a blindfold on and just throwing down punishment and then opening them going, oh man, didn't know that punishment was going to fall there. No, His punishment is not random. It's always directed towards the guilty. And we are guilty. They were wicked, so He's going to blot them out. We are wicked, so God should blot us out. Where wickedness multiplies, God's punishment must be poured out. But, church family, there's a but. There's a but in verse 8. And this is the good news. The third truth we learn in this passage is this. God's punishment of wickedness provides the stage for His saving grace to be displayed. God's punishment of wickedness provides the stage for His saving grace to be displayed. Where humanity multiplies, wickedness multiplies. And where wickedness multiplies, God's punishment must be poured out. But in God's sovereign grace, where God's punishment gets poured out, what we have is the stage on which His incredible grace gets displayed for all the world. Verse 1-7 through paints a bleak picture of a world of wickedness and God's coming judgment. And verse 8 says, But everyone is getting ready to be justly wiped out. But... O church, verse 8, sweeps in like a, like a drop of rain in the desert. Like, a, like some food to a starving man. Like, like a sip of water to someone who's dying for thirst. I mean, that's what verse 8 is. Look at it. Love it. When we study verses 1 through 4, I read a, a quote from one theologian. I'll remind you of it. He was commenting on verse 1, which says that humanity was multiplying, which was a blessing. It's always a blessing when humanity multiplies. And then verse 5 says wickedness was great. And this theologian said this, he said, but even those areas where God's blessing operates, he was talking about the multiplication of humanity, good thing, but even those areas where God's blessing operates becomes a stage for the intrusion of evil, right? So this should be a good thing that humanity is multiplying, but then evil intrudes in, and it's a multiplication of wickedness. And I agree with that statement, but there's more to the story. When we get to verse 8, we have to add a but to the end of that man's statement. Church, because of God's sovereign plan of salvation and His love towards sinful humanity, we can and must say this. Yes, 
even those areas where God's blessing operates becomes a stage for the intrusion of evil. But, but, the intrusion of evil becomes a stage for God's saving grace to be displayed. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase, found favor, means that God showed Noah grace. Grace means that you get something good that you don't deserve. It's something that's given to you. It's not something that you earn. Verse 8 does not mean that Noah was a good person. Like that his heart was not wicked. And so God just said, hey, here is one good person. Here's one person who's not wicked. So I'm going to reward him with rescue from the flood. No. Noah had a wicked heart just like everyone else in his day. He was a descendant from Adam. He was infused with wickedness. In fact, Scripture gives us evidence of that wickedness if we read in Genesis chapter 9 about Noah. He was not a perfect man. But as we will see in the next passage, Noah's life revealed that he believed in God and trusted God's Word. And as what always happens with those who come to God in faith, God showed Noah grace. And that grace led to Noah being rescued from God's punishment. We, we, we read this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Just want you to notice that. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Church, when a wicked human becomes an heir of righteousness, the only explanation for that is the grace of God. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As we started our service out today saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We not only serve a God who blots out the wicked in His holy wrath, but we also serve a God who blots out our sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 3 says, I... I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. King David, having been convicted of the wickedness in his own heart, cried out. He said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And Peter and John told the people in Jerusalem, Repent. Therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. You say, well, how is it that God both blots out the wicked and blots out the sin of the wicked without blotting the wicked person out? How does God pour out His punishment upon sinners, upon sin, and at the same time rescue sinners from their sin? The answer is very simple. We need look no further than the cross of Christ. We need look no further than the cross of Christ. For there upon the cross, God poured out His righteous wrath toward your sin and my sin. And in the very same act, He showered repentant sinners with His grace. You see the beauty of the cross of Christ. See, according to God's divine and sovereign plan on the cross, the innocent one received the punishment, not the guilty. Jesus, the righteous Son of God, was blotted out upon the cross so that your sins and not you would be blotted out forever. 
See, because Jesus is fully God, he didn't stay blotted out, if we could use that terminology. He didn't stay dead, but he rose up from the grave, which means that through faith in Jesus, the one who took our sin upon himself, God can blot out our sin and give us eternal life with Jesus Christ. God's punishment of wickedness provides the stage for His saving grace to be displayed. And we see that most clearly upon the cross of Christ. God was pouring out His divine punishment towards wickedness. And at the very same time, He was displaying His saving grace toward wicked, wicked I love the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's speaking about Satan. Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's why I can stand up here and say with confidence that people are not mostly good. Because the Bible says that we are objects. We are children of His wrath. But then Paul has a but there. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Friends, this is the gospel message that our hearts are wicked, that God still loved us in the midst of our wickedness, and He showed us immeasurable grace by sending His Son to rescue us from our sins so that we can not only have eternal life with Him forever, but so that our hearts can be changed right now and we can live that grace out by living out a life of good works for the glory of God. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God that though great is the wickedness of the human heart and great is the wrath of God that is unleashed upon all wickedness, great also is the grace of God that He unleashed upon His Son as He hung upon the cross. When we live in a world of wickedness, our hearts are full of wickedness, and if not for God's grace, we, our hearts, and all of us would be utterly destroyed by the wrath of God Almighty, which Scripture says will take place one day in the fires of hell. But, but, you can find favor in God's sight. But God can pour His grace into your life. He's already poured His wrath out upon His Son. He's ready to pour His grace into your life today. So I just wonder... Have you received this gift of grace? Listen, it's grace. It can't be earned. You can't work for it. You can't just try to become a better person because the only thing our wicked hearts produce is wickedness. We, that, that's clear. So we try to save ourselves. It's, we're going to fail. But God has provided this gift of salvation in His Son. And if you haven't trusted in Christ today, you can. You can. Just tell God that 
you're a sinner. He already knows it, but just agree with him on that. Say, God, I agree with you. You already know I'm a sinner. And today you've convicted my heart that I am wicked and I need your help. And God, I believe that the help that you have sent is Jesus Christ. And so I believe in what Jesus has done on the cross to rescue me from my sin. And I ask you to come and change me. Not just outwardly, but from the inside out. Give me a new heart. Wash me clean. Blot out my sin. Because your son was blotted out upon the cross in my place. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus. That we see even right here in Genesis chapter 6. God, very clearly, your word tells us that we are wicked In a very real way, nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 6. We all come into this world with wicked, wicked hearts. But God, you also never change in the fact that you punish sin and you rescue sinners by your grace. And God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that grace has appeared, bringing salvation. And that grace is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He hung upon the cross. He died in our place. He rose up from the grave. God, if there's someone here today who hasn't trusted in Christ, I pray that right now they would be talking to You. and They would be confessing their sins and crying out for salvation through Jesus Christ. God, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, God, we are to praise You with every breath in our lungs. You have saved us so that we can praise You. God, it is a rejection of the grace that You have given us when we don't live and praise to You. It's like we're saying we're not thankful for what You've done for us when we don't praise You. We don't walk in good works. We don't live for You. And so God, would You even use this reminder of Your grace to lead those of us who have trusted in Christ to a closer walk with You. God, may our response be that of worship. Worshiping the God of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.